If you turn now to verse 17 here in Genesis chapter 14, we come to what I believe is one of the strangest people in all of the Bible. This incredible character that many of you know his name, probably some of you know quite a bit about him, some of you know a little about him, some of you, some of you know nothing about him. If you were a former Mormon and you're here tonight, maybe you were a part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you'll recognize this name, and that is Melchizedek. This incredible priest and king combined who has no record of his lineage, no record of his dying, and it is to him that Abram meets after these series of battles, and Abram pays homage, worship, and tithes to him. And so in the Old Testament, we have a couple of different ways to understand God appearing in the Old Testament. One of them, which is the clearest, is called a theophany. In other words, it's an Old Testament appearance of God where God appears to his people. One of those easy for everyone to see is the, the theophany of God appearing to Moses on the mountain. We'll get there. But there's also a theologic term called a Christophany, and that would be an appearance of Christ bodily in the Old Testament. And so tonight we're looking at one of those particular passages of Scripture uh, that I think very well uh, could be, is in my opinion, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And I'll get to that when we dig into the Scriptures tonight. Would you join me and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is life, strengthens us, it causes us to know that your plan has been in place since the beginning. Lord, that you never intended for man to suffer in his own sin. You never intended for us to perish. Satan was actually not created for mankind at all, but or that hell itself was created for Satan and not for people. And so, God, we're, we're just blessed uh, as we study to recognize that uh, you have our lives fully in view. And so, God, as we study the Word tonight, would you strengthen us to hear it, receive it, Lord, and to, to live it out. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin chapter 14, we see these series of battles. Remember that Abraham has made this journey of faith. He's come from Haran. He's actually come from Ur of the Chaldees, which is in modern-day Iraq, Babylonia. Uh, very specifically, he was a Mesopotamian, if you will. He was from the region of Mesopotamia. He's now settled in the lower regions of what would be called Canaan, the land of the Canaanites, which is all these tribes that have kind of loosely banded together. Uh, we'll come to know them as the Hittites and the Amorites and the Edomites and all of these people that live uh, in the region that we call Israel, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and part of northern Egypt. And so as these battles ensue, as we saw this war between those who were of the flesh and those who were of the spirit, Abram being that person whom we could say is a man who is righteous, God calls him such, wants to walk in the spirit. And then you have these kings uh, of the lower Jordan Valley, and they have now had a battle. They've taken captives. Abraham's gone after them. He's brought them back. And now he gets back to the southern end of the Jordan Valley by the Dead Sea, uh, back down to Sodom, and we pick up the story there. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley 
of Shaveh, and that simply means the king's valley. I remember the king of Sodom. We see his name in verse 2. And so here is Barah, this king. The king of Sodom, which means burning. And so the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abram. After his return from the defeat of Shadolamir and the kings who were with him. And so we, we pick up the story where we last left off this rescue mission that Abram goes on to bring back Lot. And verse 18 begins this very short but very impactful meeting with someone whom we'll need to look elsewhere in the Bible uh, to, to get some insight as to who he is. And then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out the bread and the wine. And he was priest of God Most High, and underline it. Very important, when you talk about God, it has always been so, that the God that you're talking about, you define. Because there are all kinds of people's variations of who they think God is, what they think God is. And so when we say Jesus Christ our Lord, we're talking about God who is the Savior. Amen? We're talking about the one and only, the Word, the living Word, the light of the world. We're talking about all these things. We're defining who we're talking about. Matter of fact, the name Jesus itself means Yahweh is salvation, or God is salvation. So when we say a specific name, and it is the name of God, and we do that multiple times, we're trying to define exactly who this God is. It's not one of the gods that are worshipped by the people of the plain. It is a very specific God, priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High. So again, very clear who this is being, who's being talked about here because we know who Abram's God is. Amen? So we know who Melchizedek's God is. Amen? It's the God, the one and only God. It is Yahweh, whom we call Yahweh Lord of hosts or the Lord of heaven. It is God himself. Blessed is Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Further definition of who God is that's being spoken of. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So we remember what Abram has already said about how he gained victory. He took no credit for, him, for it himself. Uh, he believed it was God that gave him the victory. And he gave him a tithe of all. And so we'll look at this in some detail. This is the first mention of the word tithe. It's a very specific word. It means simply a tenth. And that tithe is going from Abram, who is a righteous man, a man who follows God most high, and he is going to give to this king, who is also a priest, a tenth of all that he has. And now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Now this is a picture of what generally happened during times of war. The spoils of war uh, went to the victor. So Abram has a right. He's been the victor in this battle. He could have taken anything. 
but he has righteousness in view and he has people in view. He wants to be pleasing to God and he wants to make sure that he focuses on the right thing. And so the king of Sodom says, give me the the persons and take the goods for yourself. Isn't that just like the enemy? You can have all this world, but let me have the people. Isn't that how he tried to entice Jesus? I will give you the kingdoms of the world, but you follow me. And so it's very clear that there's two sides in view here, one righteous and one unrighteous. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high. So he adds yet another defining characteristic to the statement of who he's talking about. He says, my master is God most high. And I've promised, I've sworn, what he's saying is I've made an oath that I'm going to live righteously before the God most high, my Lord. The possessor of heaven and earth. You see, when you believe that God is who he says he is, then everything that's in your possession actually does not belong to you, it belongs to God. Amen? Because the scriptures are very clear that everything that's on the earth is the Lord's. The earth and the fullness of it belongs to him. So anything that we think we own, we don't actually own, it's not actually yours, it's actually on loan from God, he's allowed you stewardship over it. And so the issue is, for Abram, look, I recognize everything that's here, all of it belongs to God, and I'm leaving it in his hands. But I care about what he cares about, and notice verse 23, that I will take nothing. I I won't risk damaging my relationship with God. I will not risk damaging his holy name by taking a thing, including from a thread to a sandal strap. Now that's getting pretty picky, isn't it? It's like, well, Lord, you can, you can have 99.9%, but could I have a thread, please? Abram has his priorities very, very straight here. And that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, and if you've ever wondered what the right way to look at everything is, that you might be able to say about it, this is mine, This passage can help you sort all that out. Notice what Abram says. I will not take anything that is yours. I don't want you to give me anything is another way to look at it. I'm not interested in anything that you have. And here's why. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I don't want you to get the credit for anything that is in my possession. He gives the exception, and that exception is the thing that's important to God. Except only the young men, what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, Mamre, and let them take their portion. He says, you can keep all the spoils of war, you can keep the money, you can keep the stock portfolio, you can keep the buildings, you can keep the houses, you can keep everything. All I want to do is redeem the people 
and give them enough money so that they survive until we get, or enough food so that they survive until we get back home. That's Abram having God's view of worldly possessions. That's Abram caring about what God cares about. And so when we look at this passage, we see this very interesting character, Melchizedek. His name really is most easily translated the, the king of peace, but uh, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. But I, I want to see first kind of how Abram, this, this worshiper of God, because he continually evokes God's name. You know, sometimes I think we as Christians in our very modern world today forget to give God credit for who God is. And we don't mention his name. We don't even defend his name when we hear somebody use it as an epithet. We, we just kind of sit by and hear Abram is saying, look, I, I, he's in this, in essence, State Department meeting with a fellow ruler. And he's saying, look, I want to make something very clear. I serve the God Most High, the one and the only. A lot of Christians today just simply evoke the name of God in a very, very general sense. I believe in God. You need to be specific about who you are, who, who it is that you believe in. Abraham makes it very specific. And so after this battle, we see this incredibly wise warrior turn into a worshiper. And it's very true that in our lives, sometimes after these great victories, anybody ever had a monumental attack after you've had a great victory in your life? I have. That seems like every time something great happens in my life to where the Lord's at work doing something amazing, the next morning... The gates of hell open up and four billion demons come to my door. And all of a sudden, things that you thought were dead and gone and in the past, here, here comes some thought process you thought you already had victory over. Something enters into your mind, some old passion about something that could take you away from the, the things that God wants to do in your life. And the lesson here is we have to be watchful, maybe even more so after the victory than before. Because when we've actually been part of that victorious walk, sometimes the enemy turns up the heat. And in that very general sense, that's what's happening to Abram here. He is being tested. Are you going to, all these spoils of war are yours. Now remember, we've already learned that Abram is already rich. Lot is already rich. They have the things that would have determined someone to be rich uh, in great measure in their lives. They have camels. They have property. They have crops. They have people working for them. They are big-time employers in the region, if you'll want to look at it that way. But as soon as Abram leaves the battlefield after the victory... He's met by two kings, two very different kings. And you're going to be met after the victory by two kings, virtually every time. You may not see it that way initially, but Barah, the king of Sodom, the place of burning, 
This man, it's interesting because bara in Hebrew is actually gift. So his gift is the gift of burning. In other words, let me burn you. I want to give you a gift. That's kind of a little play on words. So you have Sodom, this, this place that he's the king of. I, I want to give you a gift from Sodom. I want to destroy your life. You see, the enemy doesn't tell you that, does he? When the enemy attacks you after a victory, he does not tell you he's trying to destroy you. He tells you, well, you had a really rough time. I, I, I just want to give you a few things. You fought hard. Let me give you a couple of things from... I, I've got these little gifts. They came from Sodom. Sure, they've got the mark of Sodom on them. But don't worry about that. They're nice. They're beneficial. Be very, very, very careful. Because Abram is given a choice here. A choice of loyalty between the king of peace and the king of burning. And the picture is really this. If you bow down to the world, everything that you have because of the world is one day going to burn. Every bit of it. You're not taking any of it with you. I've been involved in a few family discussions as people are facing the end of their days and, and you cannot believe the kind of fights and arguments that families get into over possessions. Homes and cars and cash. All important things in this life, by the way. I don't mean to dismiss their value to us as human beings. But man, I watch people destroy fellow family members over some stock certificates. Only to find out that they go to cash them in and they're not worth anything. Let me give you a little heads up. In the end, none of it's worth anything. It's all going to burn. Every last thing on this planet is for this planet. It's the only place it's any good and you can't take it with you. And so Abraham has his focus right. Abram's looking at this in this sense. He's saying, look, I know what matters. And what matters is people. You see, there's only one thing on this planet that you can take to heaven with you. And that's other believers. That's people who currently today do not know the Lord, that you can lead to the Lord you can cause them to hear the gospel and be saved, and they can go with you. That's the only thing on this earth that can go with. So what does Abram care about? He says, give me the people. And give me enough food to get them back home. I'm asking for something very simple, a, a basic kindness. But not so much food that they're going to have food for the rest of their days. Just let me get them back so I can take care of them. This king is interesting because his name means king of righteousness. And where he's from, Salem, which is a derivative of Shalom, is peace. So he is the king of righteousness. And he's the priest of this place as well. And this place is peace. So start putting some of these pieces together in the back of your mind. And assemble who it is that's being represented here. And we'll get to Hebrews chapter 7 here in just a little bit because I think it's, it's worth looking at for at least a little bit of our time tonight. But if you connect Hebrews chapter 7 and Psalm 110, uh, both of them connect Melchizedek with guess who? 
None other than Jesus. When you think about who Jesus is, he is both king and the high priest of heaven, isn't he? He is the king of righteousness, and he is the priest of everyone and everything. And so Melchizedek in that way is connected. So he's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. And just like Melchizedek uh, in Abram's day or Abraham's day, we have one king, we have one priest, and and he resides in heaven. And so as you look at the Old Testament scriptures, it begins to paint this picture uh, of this strange guy that appears here to Abram. And the first thing we see is Abram responds to what he hears because now he's got to do something with what he's hearing. He said, okay, well, you're the, you're the king of righteousness and you, you come from the, the, the town, if you will, of peace. You come from the city of peace. And so you're also the king of that city, which means you're the king of peace. And you're the king, what should be my response to that? first thing we see is everything belongs to you. Abram doesn't take what he could. Abram doesn't receive all the spoils of war. He, he, he could have told lots and said, well, look, we've earned this stuff. We can set ourselves up for life. He says, I'm not going to do that. So I don't want to risk living a life of compromise. And so Abram gives us a little bit of a heads up here. There are a lot of things that you will face in life. There are a lot of things that I will face in life that are legal, that are not okay with God. There are a lot of things that you can possess in life that are legal, but they are not morally and ethically okay with God. In other words, God wouldn't want you to have those things because they would compromise you and your walk with him. And so Abram takes the the high road here. One of those things that God gives us control over is our own bodies. If you want to turn over there, you can turn to Romans chapter 6. We'll look at it from that perspective, but by the time we get to chapter 12, he's also asking us to offer up our bodies back to God as living sacrifices. But verse 12 of Romans 6 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What's Abraham doing? He's presenting everything he has himself to God. Saying, God, I want to be pleasing to you. I belong to you. My life belongs to you. Everything I have, everything I am, all that I will ever hope to be came from you, and I want to make sure that you understand that. So I'm not going to touch these things lest anyone get the wrong impression about who my king is. Can you say that about your own life? Are you willing to give things up so that the Lord will not be shamed. You know, I've had an awful lot of conversations about 
basic things in this life where people have been forced to kind of walk to the edge of compromise to have something in this life that we could say is functionally good and not illegal. And that can be a professional move. That could be maybe some deal on real estate or some type of investment strategy or portfolio or some you know, multi-level marketing thing that in and of itself is not illegal, it's not even immoral, but it's kind of out there on the edge and you're selling a product you don't necessarily believe in, but you got an opportunity to be rich. Are you willing to give those things up to be able to stand before a holy God and say, I did nothing to shame your name? It's an important part of our walk. And I can also tell you it's very difficult to do at times. Because just like in this situation, the enemy was basically saying, why don't you give me what you have and I'll give you back more than what you have? In other words, the enemy's saying, why don't you serve me and I'll make you rich? I'll make you famous. And by the way, this won't be the last time we see this in Genesis. This is the very thing that is thrown in Joseph's face. He's in Pharaoh's household. He can do anything he wants. He says, oh, no, I'm not going there. Daniel had the same thing. What was his response? It's right there in Daniel chapter 1. I will not eat of the king's delicacies. I don't want anybody thinking that I worship your God. How about Samson? Samson, for a little bit of physical pleasure, ends up destroying his life, his witness. He went from this incredible conqueror that everyone fears to a blind man chained to a couple of pillars, pulling the palace down on his own head. How about David? king of Israel weeping in the house of the Lord because of his sin he took something that didn't belong to him he knew it was wrong for his own work for his own pleasure for his own good and they paid a price Abram sees that test and he says there's no way I'm going to do that Brothers and sisters, this is a monumental lesson for each of us. You must look at every opportunity you have in life from the central perspective, will this affect my relationship with God Most High? Does it have the potential to destroy my witness? When people come to me, and, and they often do, saying, you know, well, can you show me the verse that says that I can never have a glass of wine? I, but no, I can't. But I can tell you countless thousands of stories of people who have completely blown their witness, ended up in jail, had car crashes, and killed somebody. So do you want to trade that reality for the reality is you will never have those problems if you don't ever drink? You see how easy it is to actually make that decision based on what's best for your relationship with the Lord? 
how will it affect my relationship with God Most High? That should be the question. Will it negatively affect my relationship with the Lord? Will it stain my ability to be a mouthpiece for righteousness? Abram takes the right road and he denies himself the pleasure of what he is entitled to, which is the spoils of war. There would have been no fault on him. It would have not been inherently wrong had he taken everything, including the people. But his concern was, what will people think about my God? Powerful lesson for us. What will the decisions you make cause people to think about your God? Abram knew it wasn't out of bounds. He knew it wasn't illegal. It wasn't even morally wrong. But people would get the wrong impression about how Abram had succeeded. And he says, I won't do it. So he escapes with just the people and some lunch. I want to kind of dissect a little bit who this guy Melchizedek is. I don't want to run through these things fairly quickly for the sake of time tonight. This strange priest king of Salem that Abram is bowing down to, that Abram is paying tithe to, that Abram is concerned about being a witness before. He's this man who comes from nowhere. And interesting, the first thing we see about him is he brings the, the bread and the wine. Now, of course, we can fast forward about 2,000 years to Jesus sitting at the table with the disciples. And what does Jesus have in front of him? The bread and the wine. And Jesus tells us what those two things mean. And it's interesting that of all the things that could have been recorded here, the only thing that said is Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the one who is also the priest, brings out exactly two things, the bread and the wine. Kind of sounds like somebody's trying to point us somewhere. Melchizedek's name is almost enough in and of itself. When you read the 110th Psalm there, it gives us a little insight. Verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now it's interesting to me that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints kind of absconded with this Melchizedekian priesthood. And in fact, they claim to actually have it. It's been transferred to them. And so the upper echelons of the Mormon church actually called themselves priests after the order of Melchizedek because it was lost. And now it's been revitalized through the Mormon church because they realize that who this man points to and who he most closely resembles is none other than Jesus Christ. And so we're the priesthood after Melchizedek. 
but I think there's something something extremely more simple that's in view uh, here in, in Genesis chapter 14 and also uh, there in Psalm 110. And that's simply Jesus has made an appearance pre-incarnate, before he was born. Remember Jesus was, is, and always shall be God. And in the beginning, before there was an earth, before there was the universe that we know it, Jesus existed. He was seen as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So Jesus has always existed in that sense. He was the son that was given so that we would be able to relate to him but he has always been God, and he has always existed. So it would be nothing for him to simply appear and to give us a little bit of insight. So the Old Testament saints, those who lived during those days and times, would be able to have in the back of their mind this question, who was that guy Melchizedek? What do we know about him? Why is it that he's even in the Bible? I believe this is nothing more than an appearance of the second person of the Godhead. We often see the name, the angel of the Lord, also used uh, for Jesus appearing. You can see that in, in Joshua at the Battle of Jericho in Judges when Manoah is fighting the angel of the Lord. You can see it as the shepherd of the flock. We'll see that when we get into a study in the book of Isaiah. But as Melchizedek comes on the scene, we know nothing about him. Have you noticed that every single person up to this point who's important, we have their genealogy, we have their Toledoth. We have this picture of where they came from, who they're related to, but Melchizedek, we have no idea who he's related to. And we see that even clearer in Hebrews chapter 7. So Abram, Abram responds to this and he says, I'm going to give you the tithe. Now again, law first mentioned, this is the first mention of tithing or giving in that sense, the blessing of being able to give uh, that first of our first fruits, the, the tenth, which is all tithe means. So when somebody says, do you tithe? Tithe means something. Tithe doesn't mean we figure out what it is that we want to give to the Lord. Tithe means we literally give a tenth of the increase of our flock. So that's a tenth of our income goes to the Lord. Uh, and I'll tell you that you cannot afford to not tithe to the Lord. And I'll tell you why in just a minute, because actually your Bible tells you that. And you can begin to look there. If you want to go to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, turn to chapter 3, and we'll look at that in just a second. So this strange priest who is the king of peace and the king of righteousness comes out and he brings bread and wine. He brings what will come to be known by us as the broken body and the shed blood. He brings that out and presents it before Abram. And Abram's response is, let me give you a tithe. In other words, I think Abram knows exactly who Melchizedek is. And so he gives to him. If you look at Malachi chapter 3 and let's look at it together. People have often said, well, you know, there's no place in the New Testament where it says to give the tithe. That's correct. There isn't. That's because it doesn't need to be said, because there's never been any change in it, because the passage that we're looking at was before the Mosaic Law, before the Levitical Law. It predates all of that and has never been changed. 
And so if the example that we have of the first person giving to the Lord Most High is in the Old Testament, predates the time of Moses, and it's never revoked, then it still stands as our example. And here's why to me it's important. Uh, And here's what it says. And remember, this is God speaking through the final prophet before 400 years of silence, verse 8, Malachi chapter 3. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And the answer is given, in tithes and offerings. God's response to the prophet Malachi is, you're cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me. Even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then God says something that he says nowhere else in the entire Bible. Just so we get this clear, I want you to test me in this. I'm going to give you a little homework, is what the prophet Malachi is saying to the people of Israel. He's saying, look, I I want us to test God in this. Try me in this, he says, says the Lord of hosts. And see if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough for you to receive it. And then he says something to me that is even, I I almost look at this passage and go, this next part is even more important than the fact that God wants to bless us. And he said, here's how I want you to test me. Just try tithing. Just give me that tenth and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field says the Lord and the nations will call you blessed for you will be in a delightful land says the Lord of hosts that directive is never changed throughout the entirety of the New Testament. And the reason that's important is Abram, I believe, understands this principle because the principle itself came from God. And so Abram just comes out and he says, here's my tenth, because I recognize that you are the king of righteousness and it belongs everything to you. This is a sign that I trust you in that. And so Malachi comes along and he says, if you want to know about the character and the nature of God and whether he's a good God and a giving God, then test him. See if it isn't so. And I can tell you from countless hundreds of times of sitting with people in some state of financial difficulty, and very often I will first find out, are you a believer in Christ? Are you a believer in Christ? Do you guys love the Lord? And then I'll ask them something very simple. has nothing to do with me or me wanting to know any of the details. Do you faithfully tithe to the Lord? And the first words out of their mouth, invariably, when they have financial problems is, well, you know, kind of, sort of, maybe not. And I'll look at him. I said, I'm going to give you the same counsel that the prophet Malachi gave you. Try him in it. Because if you are faithful to the Lord, his word says, he is absolutely going to be faithful to you and bless you. So Abram got that. He says, look, here it is. I don't even, I just met you. But I believe you represent 
the Lord God Most High. Here's the tithe. I want to prove it with my actions. I'm sure that if you're, if you're who you say you are, God's got this. And a little testimony from Connie and I's own life. Never, ever, ever, ever have we gone without when we have been faithful in giving. Never. Not once. We've gone through times of testing. But we have never gone without. And I've watched shoes last longer and cars last longer and homes not need painting because the Lord destroys the devourer. He makes things last according to his plan and purpose. So if you've ever questioned whether you should or should not tithe, I'm telling you for your own benefit and your own blessing, if you want things to last longer and you want God to pour out a blessing upon you that you can't contain, try out giving them sometime. Because you're going to find out you can't. You cannot outgive God. Paul in the New Testament goes a little further than that, and he basically says, if you reap so sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. So if you want to reap bountifully, give bountifully, and do it cheerfully. Abram got that. He gave the Lord his very best. And in doing so, he believed that he was bringing it to the Lord himself. There's another thing in here. When, when we give, we don't give to the church. We don't give to a person. We don't give to the pastor. We give to God. One of the reasons that we have a board in this church that oversees all of the finances of the church, one of the reasons that we have a controller that oversees the finances of the church, one of the reasons we have an accounting department that oversees the finances of the church is the monies in this church do not belong to me. They're not mine. This is not my own little personal world. I'm not just the president of the corporation, so the assets of the corporation belong to the stockholders, which would be those who have you know, vested interests. No, we just give it to God. And we say, God, it's yours. You do whatever you want with it. And the crazy thing is, when you apply that to the church, the church doesn't have want. So make sure that you're honoring the Lord. In those areas. Be prompt about it. Abraham just instantaneously did so. He was also, just as Paul was, Abraham was proportionate. He said, here it is. Here's, here's the tenth. And so begin there and see what God does. Test him. I encourage you to do it for your own benefit. As I said, we'll get a little bit of help and I just want to give you some places that you can you can read later. So if you read, one of the beauties of the New Testament is it often enlightens the Old Testament so we can help understand it. But Hebrews chapter 7 paints a picture of this mystery man, if you will. And, and if you were to think about the most important people in the Old Testament, chances are Melchizedek's not going to be really high on your list. It's like, oh yeah, we know a bunch about him. You just read everything there is in the Old Testament. There's not much there. But he's really important because he's illuminated significantly in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews re repeats that he was both the king and the priest. If you know anything about the Jewish people, the priestly tribe was the Levitical tribe. But the kingly tribe was Judah. And you couldn't be both at the same time. 
that's an impossibility unless somehow you can blend those two things together. Guess what Jesus did? Blends both those two things together, both priest and king. Linked on one side through Mary and on the other side through Joseph. So you have this beautiful picture of who Melchizedek is. His name is very significant. His lineage is significant. His history is significant. And so I just simply encourage you, read chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews because it, it repeats some of these things that we've already read. But concerning his life in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 7, it says, Therefore it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And so it kind of gives us a picture. It's like, oh, no, that's not the priestly tribe. And yet is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, he testifies you were a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the only way that can happen is if you change the law. What did Jesus do? He changed the law. You are now no longer under the law, but under grace. You, you see, the Jewish nation was accustomed to the priesthood, the tribe of Levi. They were chosen to serve in the tabernacle. You read that whole story in Exodus 29. Aaron was the first high priest. They, they were used to all of that. But Aaron wasn't going to fulfill the role anymore. And Judah was the chosen line of the kings. So the only way to fix this is to take all those things and deal with the law somehow. In this is the law and the prophets fulfilled. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus can fulfill both roles. I think Abram met a pre-incarnate Jesus outside of the little dusty city that we call Saddam. And he met a priest who is also the king who I believe one day we're all going to meet when he comes for the church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us and the strange mystery meeting between this king and this priest. Pray, God, that we would have in view how does anything and everything that we do, what we possess, how we conduct ourselves while we're on this earth, how does it affect our relationship with you? What would it do to your name? Lord, would you be our first concern and our last concern and would our secondary be concern be people? Because Christ Jesus came to die so that sinners could be saved. And so, Lord, we know that your primary concern is people. It's not possessions. It's not houses and cars. It's your people made in your likeness. And so we, we pray that you would give us that heart. Help us to give freely of all that we have to your work. Help us to do that joyfully, Lord, just as 
Abram does here. He doesn't even really know who this guy is. He just knows he's from you. And so he gives freely of all that he has, that tenth. Bless us, Lord, as we endeavor to live our lives for you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.